Well, it's good to have you guys. Uh, I want to continue in the book of First Peter. Probably going to spend two weeks on this next imperative. I felt like I rushed through imperative five last week, and I don't want to be guilty of doing the same again this week, so I'm going to be a little more thorough maybe than I was last week. But uh, we're going to be with imperative number six today. Probably be three, three more weeks in uh, in First Peter. Then we'll do Second Peter, very short book, uh, specifically about uh, false teachers and their end and their methodologies. And then we will do, uh, I believe I'll I'll do First and Second Thessalonians, uh, probably the we uh, the the study after that. So just gives us an idea of where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter four this morning. We're going to look at verses eight through nineteen. Again, I won't finish this today, but uh, uh, we'll try to finish it next week. We're going to be looking at imperative number six uh, of uh, the book of First Peter. Remember I said there's going to be seven foundational imperatives that we've used to base all of our study on. We've been looking at the doctrine and the theology behind each commandment. hope it's been beneficial to you. Remember last week we talked about the end of all things is at hand. So therefore, be serious in your prayers, and I hope you have a, a, a specific burden for your lost friend, friends and family as we see uh, the, the birth pangs increasing and becoming more and more uh, common and more and more uh, uh, distinct and, and painful as we see the ends coming, and I pray we just be faithful and serious. So let's look at the First Peter chapter 4. Uh, we look at, we'll start in verse 8, and then we'll finish verse 19, which will be the sixth imperative. Verse 8, chapter 4. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good managers of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and the sovereignty forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent which you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evil doer, or as a busybody in other people's affairs. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, here's the imperative, imperative number six. Let those who suffer according to the will of God 
commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So as we look at this uh, sixth imperative found in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. Uh, as we look at this, I want to first of all, I want to say that in the original Greek, uh, this wording, uh, as I have it in the New King James, and some of you other have it, the, the original Greek, the order is a little different. And I think the Holy Spirit, what he does is that he emphasizes uh, God the Father's power and sovereignty and the emphasis is not as purposeful, and the, the emphasis on the sovereignty and the creative work of God is a stimulus to the people. Remember the people in Peter's day are suffering. They are being persecuted. They're a, a very, very small minority, and they are being blasphemed against and mocked, and, and they are being burnt and fed to the lions. So the Holy Spirit is going to emphasize the power and the sovereignty of God that these folks who are suffering and us as Christians who will suffer, who have suffered maybe in the future, uh, will be encouraged that God is sovereign, God is in control, and the pathway, like we've said, through the persecution, through the trials, through the discouragements, through the narrow gate that this walk is, that we will be encouraged that we have a God who is sovereign over us, who's purposeful in everything he allows to happen in our life, and it is for his glory and it is for our good. So as we journey through these last imperatives, keep that in mind. And so in the original, the Greek, it says to a faithful creator, let them, that's us Christians, be committed in their souls to doing good works and well-doing. So first of all, we look at uh, to a faithful creator. We see the word creator. Uh, this is the word creator that speaks of God's sovereign uh, creation of all that is. Uh, in the beginning, God, Elohim, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the host of them by the, the breath of his mouth. If you look at Hebrews eleven three, as we look at this creator, to whom we owe our allegiance as a graced people. And uh, he has authority over us, power over us, and we, he has a right to be worshipped uh, for thousands of different causes, but specifically for his work in creation. Look at uh, Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the uh, worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We call this in Hebrew, this theology of ex nihilio, which means out of, out of nothing, something. So God took nothing and he spoke through his word. The Holy Spirit 
moved and through his sovereign will, the worlds were formed, the planets were formed, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the earth, all that is was formed by his word. And so he created out of nothing something, even the darkness, scripture says, is God created and ordained by God. So we see this imperative stimulates us to worship God and, and and directly draws our attention to the fact that he is our creator. And because of that, we are uh, alleged and we are, we are uh, responsible to respond to him uh, the way he ordains us to respond to him. Then it says he's the faithful creator that speaks of his, Reliable character. So this creator is reliable and he can be implicitly trusted. Uh, Keith is going to preach today on waiting on God. And one of the reasons why we wait on God is because of his, the mutability of his character that he can be trusted. So we can take Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I know a life verse for some of you, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. And then turn with me to Lamentations, just a a verse that I love to meditate on frequently. Uh, uh, Lamentations, Jeremiah Lamentations, book written after the destruction of Babylon. As everything is in ruins and, and, the, and the, the prophet weeps over what's going on. But this speaks to the faithfulness of God. Uh, we aren't faithful, but he is. And so as our creator, he is faithful. And to a persecuted people, to a minority people, to a people like us in 2020 who live in the midst of seeming chaos and lawlessness, As we see the deterioration of this planet, we see evil men wax worse and worse. Uh, We are encouraged that God has warned us, God has told us, and we know that God will sustain us through this. And so our hope is in him. Look at the Lamentation, chapter 3. If we look at the faithful creator, Lamentations 3.19, remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind as he remembers the magnificence of the temple and the way it was and, uh, before the captivity. Therefore, I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so we see the faithfulness of God, the creator who preserves us. Although he ordains the sufferings, he preserves us through. And so we wait on him and we trust him because he is reliable in his character and he is sovereign in his power. Any comments about those that first phrase, this imperative, our faithful creator? Any comments about that? If not, 
let's look at the imperative itself. We see that he's a faithful creator, but look what he tells us to do. He says his will is that we suffer. It is God's secretive and it is this declarative will that that we suffer as believers. Christ himself learned obedience through suffering, Scripture tells us in Hebrews 5 eight. And in his and in his purposes, as he works all things together for our good to those who are to love him and are called according to his purpose, in his we do not understand will sometimes, and I'll be quite frank about that. He has purposed that we learn hope, that we develop character, that we develop perseverance, that, that we develop uh, 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 trust in him as he trains us through suffering. So it says here in this parative, those who suffer according to the will of God. So that's why he says, don't think it's strange because I'm told you about this. My son Jesus went through this. All the prophets before him went through this. From Genesis to Malachi, God's people had gone through persecution and suffering. Jesus himself did. And so the body of Christ will. So Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the pyros. Word we get, Greek word we get, uh, 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 we get, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Pyroglyphics, uh, the, the fire. Uh, so it's a painful process, but Peter says, don't think it's strange because it has been told to you, it's been shown to you that it's God's will. So we see from scripture that it's not to avoid the trial, but it's through the trials. He is working these things out and he is painting this beautiful mosaic in each one of our lives. He ordains it. So we need to embrace the trust suffering. We may not like it. We may prefer something different, but we need to trust that he's good and he's faithful. And uh, we understand that it is his will that we suffer. So uh, any comments about that? Any reflection on that? Any any amen to that? Any uh, Any testimony how God has changed you through the suffering and that uh, you just want to confirm his faithfulness to you? Any comments? I have grown the most, my personal testimony, through suffering. Scripture tells us that when things are good, uh, when we have a full belly, we are prone to forget him and to take him for granted. And uh, so it is good that he keeps us humble, and it is good that he keeps us dependent upon him, and he does that through trials and I'm thankful for my trials, and I know many of you uh, would eventually say the same thing, although right now they're not pleasurable. So his will is that we suffer, but he's a faithful and good God, and he's our creator. Uh, I think the most interesting out of this imperative is when it says commit your souls. That's a, a phrase that uh, we don't uh, see much. Those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls. The word literally means keep on making a eternal deposit. Mm-hmm. Keep on making a eternal deposit. The word means to entrust 
yourself to his protective care, to give yourself over to him. We need to entrust, Scripture tells us, we need to entrust our lives, our wills, our emotions, our desires, our pursuits to his good care. Remember when uh, the only thing that I can think of that would give us an analogy, when you make a deposit in a bank, whether it be money or a security or or whatever it is, you are entrusting that bank to keep your money and not lose it. So just as that is a very poor example of what we do to Christ, we keep depositing obedience, faithfulness, usefulness, uh, the gifts he's given it. We keep on making this eternal deposit to him, and we commit our souls to him. I like what uh, uh, the definition I I, uh, wrote. It's an external investment to future glories. Uh, And this investment that we're making, as opposed to monies or securities or lands or whatever else we may have in this world, this eternal external investment that we, and it's in the present participle, Scripture says that, through the suffering, we're just to continue to keep on making this eternal, external investment into other people's lives, to faithfulness to him, because this investment, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 4. This investment that we are making, this deposit, this committing of our wills, our desires, our motives, our pursuits, everything we are, who we are, our souls, this committing to him and entrusting him, we can have full assurance that this investment and deposit we are making. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. It's This deposit is, is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It does not fade away. And this investment uh, is kept by God's power. So as you commit yourself to him through the suffering, through the trials, through the amb- amb- our ambiguities of life and our questions we have, we keep on making this faithful deposit of our lives into his care and trusting him that he's a rewarder of these things, and it's through blessing. And so we see this. It reminds me of the parables in uh, in uh, Matthew 13. Look at Matthew 13, just two little simple one-verse parables. This is, uh, in a nutshell, what these two parables mean. We're keeping to make, we, we perceive the value of salvation, And we perceive the value of him who saved us, that he is faithful and worthy to be worshipped. And because of his work in our hearts and who we are in Christ, remember we talked about we're a royal priesthood and chosen and peculiar people and the various ways that Peter has described his people. Look at 1344 and 1345. This deposit, I think, can be summed up quite quite well. And the treasure, is it the treasure of your heart, salvation? Is it is it a priority with you? Are you seeking first his kingdom 
And uh, are you pursuing all these things that are uh, uh, that are not worthy to be compared with his salvation? Look at the 1344. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. When he has found one pearl of great price, he sold all that he had and bought it. Just the realization that the pearl of great price is salvation, is is God's work in our hearts, and it should captivate our hearts, and, and we should desire to invest in his love for us and love for others and ministry to others. So that's the imperative command that our faithful creator it is his will we suffer, but it is his command that we keep on making a faithful deposit uh, to him and through him and because of him. And uh, we entrust our lives to him. Is the, the road is narrow, few enter, uh, but sacrifice is required. Uh, but we understand from from the, the from the parable uh, sermon on the mount that thieves will not break in and steal, and uh, it will be rewarded. So the imperative command is that we uh, keep on making the down payment and being faithful to Him, uh, and then we do this in doing good. Remember last week I. Uh, I told you that as we looked at the end of all things is at hand, one of the characteristics that we spent a little time on was that the love of many is going to wax cold and that, uh, and that many will fall away in the last days. So as I, as I, as I remember that and as I look at this imperative that we commit our deposit, make a deposit of commitment in doing good, I just want us to understand very clearly what that means and what it doesn't mean. Let me, uh, from this, uh, this is Charles Barna. It's a survey, and it's just an evidence of uh, the falling away that is occurring within Christendom today. Uh, uh, and I'll read this just real quick. Americans no longer believe that Jesus is the path to salvation and instead believe that being a good person is sufficient. of Americans believe that having some kind of faith is more important than the particular faith which one aligns. And it goes on to say, half of Christian respondents believe that someone can attain salvation by being or doing good. And then it says 58% of Americans believe that no absolute moral truth exists and that the basis of truth are factors or sources other than God. Uh, 69% said people were basically good, and is that goodness that God looks at to determine their salvation. Just one evidence of the fact that many are falling away from the truths of doctrine and teaching of Scripture. And so when when Peter says you can make a commitment of your life and keep on making this deposit to doing good, I want everybody to nod their heads if you understand this. Doing good does not save you. Doing good, not of works of righteousness. It is not by the works of the law. I could go on and on. If you want to look at that for your 
for your family to 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 witness to Galatians two sixteen, Titus three five. Works do not save, but works are simply the evidence that we are saved. We cannot say we are in Christ if there is no evidence. Faith without works is dead if it is alone. Works don't save. These folks that on this survey who do not read the word, don't believe the word, they believe, they compare themselves to other people and they think their standing is based upon how they compare to others. The standing is based upon the perfect works of the law and and holiness and one strike and you're out. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation or to merit salvation. It is a grace gift. And God doesn't compare us to anybody but the perfect, his perfect son, right? He requires perfection. So works cannot say, never could say. We never uh, appeal to God's uh, uh, holiness or character by virtue of what we do. Our best is filthy rags and Got a little excited there, but uh, you'll understand. But when it says keep on making this deposit, the works are the evidence that we're saved. If you'll just look at the book of Titus uh, very quickly, go backwards to Titus. The book, the, the whole theme of the book is works and the evidence that we are in Christ, that being, we've been washed and regenerated. Uh, but Titus... Uh, teaches among many other spots in scripture that the works is what we're doing good. We have been saved to do good works. We have been, we are God's workmanship is that we do good works, Ephesians 2.10. And so, uh, the, 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 making the deposit to do good works is evidence that we're saved. Titus, look at 2, 7 and 8, Titus, talking about the young men. As he talks about uh, how a church should operate, Titus 2.7, In all things show yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Look at 11 through 14, the same book, Titus 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to men, teaching us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. We look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from lawlessness and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Uh, look at three one. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, this is a faithful saying. I want to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So evidence that we have believed in God, that we have been saved by grace, is that our lives are characterized by faithfulness, obedience, and good works. So that's what it means. Keep on making the deposit of good works. Not that that saves you, but that that is the evidence that you are saved, and that is the pathway through the suffering is faithfulness to the faithful creator. Comments or questions about that imperative?
You have the floor. Comments or questions? Endure, finish, persevere, brothers. As Esther said, we were put in this place for such a time as this, and we need to be salt and light. It's time to push ahead. Now, of course, as Peter gives these imperatives, he always backs it up by doctrine and teaching. And so as we have been want to do, I want to look at the doctrine, the teaching, the theology that makes the imperative possible. We would not be able to do these things in our own strength, but it is God who's working in us, who's given us the will and the ability to do these things. So as we look to him, he will enable us and empower us to be faithful to what he's called us to do. Look at the theology. Look back up at verse 8. He starts the theology with the commandment, with a with the doctrine of love. Look at verse 8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter talks about this, and he is talking about our relationship to one another. Remember last week when we talked about the end of all things is at hand, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The doctrine behind that was personal repentance. Uh, If you remember that in verse 3, we have spent enough of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles, drinking and, and, and sexual immorality and revelries and drinking parties. That was our personal lifestyle. So Peter says, uh, be serious and watchful because you've been brought to repentance and God has changed you through the gospel, verse 6. Now what Peter is saying is because God has changed you in a personal relationship, he has brought you to repentance and it is goodness uh, that has led you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. Now that you have a personal relationship because of the gospel, because of the effect of the gospel, now we're looking at a relationship within the community in which we live, within the brotherhood, within our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the theology behind doing good has a great involvement with our loving one another. And in particular, it speaks of how we relate to one another. And so Paul uh, Peter says in verse 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Uh, Love is paramount. But if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, as demonstrated in personal repentance and turning from sin to Christ, you cannot have a, you cannot have a communal relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So when it says to love each other, you can't love each other unless God has saved you and changed you. And then we are able to love our brother uh, as, as Christ has loved us. So, so Paul says, uh, Peter says, above all things, it is paramount that you love one another. And this has been one of the themes throughout this book as we go through the suffering that we maintain this love and commitment to one another. Look at 1.8, uh, Peter 1.8. Just look at how he, he just uses this theology of loving one another. It says in 1.8, uh, Peter 1.8, uh, 
talking about Christ, who mean having not seen you love. So he talks about the love we have for Christ first. And it, in Scripture says, if you uh, don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love Christ whom you haven't seen? So Peter is saying, we love Christ whom you haven't seen, and therefore we love one another. Look at verse 22, uh, chapter 1. Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren. Again, he emphasizes love. Look at 217. Uh, we looked about this about a month ago. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Love the community of faith. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then 38, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted and courteous. So Paul says that, Peter says, excuse me, the doctrine that fosters uh, the deposit we keep on making and doing good works, loving one another is one of the paramount things he has in mind. When he says I love each other fervently, and this is a word we don't use anymore, and it's fantastic. Uh, when it says to fervently love each other, that Greek word means to uh, love each other deeply, love each other stretched out. And, and the connotation is very quite unique. It's, it's of a horse running at full gallop, and it's of the straining of the muscles and the tendons in full effort, to, to run the race completely and to win the victory. So when Peter says to fervently love your brothers. He's the love it, love our brothers at full gallop, not holding back, stretching out at full capacity, actively cultivated. And he means by that we need to practice this and we practice this by being around each other. We practice this by praying for each other. We practice this by actively asking each other, what can I do to help you, to encourage you? It's not a passive act, but it's an active, proactive, aggressive mindset that says, brother, I prefer you over me. What can I do to encourage you, to help you uh, in your walk? And it, it's a care for people. And so, uh, so Peter says that love is paramount and have a fervent love for one another. And I'm sure this is quite autobiographical. Remember uh, the last conversation that Peter had with Jesus after he denied Christ. Peter said, Peter, do you agape love me? And Peter says, I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, do you agape love me? Peter says, I love you like a brother. And the last thing Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? And he said, yep, I love you like a brother. So Peter remembers this call of Christ, he says, if you love me, feed my lambs. Commit, keep on making this deposit and doing good things in an ark of love. And so he remembers the testimony, the last conversation he had with his Savior after he denied him. And so Peter's encouraging us above all things to, uh, to love one another. And then there's this phrase that many people confuse, and I, I probably want to spend the rest of the time on this phrase. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. I want to look at three or four things that it doesn't mean, and then I want to look at three or four things that it does mean. Now, this 
this scripture is taken from other parts of scripture. Uh, if you'll look back one book to James, uh, chapter 5, 19 and 20. It says, love, love, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Look at James 5, 19 and 20. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Scripture tells us in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, look at verse 4. Kind of get some idea what this phrase means. Love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm going to look at some specific words. First uh, Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. So some of these words mean specific things, but as we apply them to covers a multitude of sins, this phrase, thinks no evil, uh, literally means doesn't record a ledger. So when someone sins against us, we don't put that in our back of our minds and record it to use it against our brothers at a specific time. Been there, done that? You know, when your wife or you, you say you forgive each other, that means you leave it and forget it and you don't use it as a weapon later on in a, in a really bad argument. Been there, done that? Yes. That's, love doesn't record wrongs, doesn't record it to use it as a knife in a specific argument or whatever to make yourself look better and to make your spouse look worse. Or in a, in a relationship we all have with one another, if someone, if Jim wrongs me, which he doesn't, but if he did, I wouldn't use that as ammunition against him at an opportune time. So just an example, I could have used any of you. Uh, so when it says that love covers a multitude of evil, this is what it doesn't mean. If you're writing this down, it doesn't mean that we condone or hush up sins before God or man. When it says love covers a multitude of sins, it does not mean that we ever condone sins or we hush it up before God or men. We don't sweep it under the rug. So when it says love covers a multitude of sins, it does not mean we just hush it up, we gloss over it, we say it's okay, you're okay, uh, let's just be happy. Whatever thinking goes on, it doesn't mean we condone sin. Scripture says if we regard iniquity, we cover it up, if we wink at it, God won't hear our prayer. So it certainly doesn't mean that. When it says love covers a multitude of sins, number two, it doesn't mean uh, that this is referring to our personal relationship with God. Our relationship with God needs to be confessed. It needs to be vertical. It needs to be appropriately cared for. Uh, so when it says love, if, just because we love our brothers, that doesn't, uh, uh, that is not a substitute for our relationship of confession and repentance to God. So when it covers a multitude, it's not dealing with the vertical relationship that we have personally to God in which we must maintain it 
and we must confess it and we must look to him. But this is talking about our horizontal relationship to our brothers and sisters. So when it covers a multitude, it's not talking about our personal relationship, although it is a reflection of it. It is talking about uh, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, when scripture says, if you don't forgive your brother, your trespass, neither will I forgive you your trespass. Forgiveness of people is not a pre, is not the cause of our salvation. You know, only the Son of God can forgive sins. We can choose not to dwell on them and bring it up against our brothers and we are, we can forgive it in that regard. But as far as our ability to forgive sins, that is a prerogative of God alone. But when you don't forgive other people their trespasses, you don't understand forgiveness and you don't understand the salvation of God. And so when he says you don't, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, he's talking about uh, you, you don't understand what salvation is, and you don't understand what I have done for you through my son Christ. But because you forgive someone and choose to not remember his sin and you let it go, so to speak, that is not what it's talking about. But what it is talking about is this. When you when it says love covers a multitude of sins, it means you refuse to deliberately expose sin to the gaze of all men. You don't from the pulpit say, if you only knew what Russell just did yesterday, you don't, you don't deliberately expose the personal sin of someone for your own aggrandizement. You don't from the pulpit, you don't publicly call down a brother, uh, initially. You adhere to Matthew 18, Verse 15, if a brother sins against you, you go to that brother personally and privately, right? And you seek retribution, you seek forgiveness, you rebuke or whatever you do in love in an effort to establish the relationship and restore the brother. But you don't do it openly, you don't do it brazenly, you don't do it with a motivation to humiliate or injure your brother, but you do it personally and privately in love. So when it says cover a multitude of sins, it means that you don't deliberately expose to the gaze of all men. Uh, number one, uh, it also refrains from needless gossip about someone. Uh, so in this same analogy, I've said something about Russell. I've accused him of something. I've told everybody about him. And I'm going to gossip about that because I want to humiliate him. And I basically want to make myself look better. Isn't that what it all boils down to? When you, uh, when you're belligerent against a brother or sister, or you make false accusations or gossip, you really show your heart and you're showing that you really want to make yourself look better at the, at the, uh, at the expense of your brother. So it does mean that you don't do that. And it acts as a veil to cover over. Uh, remember the story, and I'm going to be very excited if you do, of uh, Noah and his three sons. Remember when Noah, they got off the ark some years later, Noah plants a vineyard, and Noah gets drunk. He may has a sin, he commits a sin, and, uh, and in his drunkenness, he becomes, uh, He's naked, and, and we don't know all the specifics. We don't know the culture. We don't know really what went on. There may be some other things that did. 
but uh, one response was a failure to cover a multitude of sins, and one response was the definition of what it means to cover a multitude of sin. Look at uh, Genesis 9.20. This is what the definition to cover a multitude of sins. It's literally to throw a veil over it. Uh, You're not condoning the sin. You're not hushing it up. But what you're doing is you're keeping it, uh, keeping harmony. You you are promoting forgiveness. You're promoting restoration. And you're not publicly shaming uh, the one who sins. Look at 920 Genesis. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we don't know all what that goes on, but we know he publicly exposed Noah, and he gossiped about it, and he, instead of covering it, he went out and gazed upon him, and he went out and publicly shamed his dad. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They didn't see their father's nakedness. That's a definition of what it means to to love will cover a multitude of sins. Do you understand what it is? So it, it, it seeks to restore, promote harmony. It doesn't seek to injure, publicly humiliate a sister or brother in Christ, but it desires to to restore. It doesn't say it's okay. It doesn't say we're going to be good. It doesn't say that sin's not important, but it really emphasizes restoration and harmony uh, between brothers in Christ. And that is the, that is the, uh, uh, scripture calls this the causal conjunction. That's the, the reason why and the explanation and a definition a specific definition of how we can love one another fervently is we come alongside them and 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 uh, encourage them when we do sin and encourage repentance privately and in love. So, just want to end with that. It's uh it's ten o'clock. Uh, next week we're going to look at gifts. Uh, the, the one of the deposits we make in doing the will of God as we go through suffering is we keep on using the gifts that God has given us. So uh, we're going to look at being hospitable, which is a gift, and we're going to look at some of the gifts we've been given, and then we're going to take a closer look at judgment begins at the house of God, and if it begins at us and we're scarcely saved, what's going to become of the unrighteous? So we'll finish this up next week uh, as we finish this sixth imperative. I appreciate you guys. Uh, Time is short as usual. Any comments or questions about this one? It was very good. Thank you, son. Well, our mother-in-law, appreciate you. But uh, I look forward to being in person. Nothing like being in person. Uh, it's a little awkward. No one talks, and I feel like I'm uh, being looked at awful strange. But, hey, <laughs> we'll get through this. But I appreciate you guys. Let me uh, uh, let me pray, uh, and then we'll see some of you in service at 11. Father, thank you for this command. Thank you that you're faithful and that you're our creator. Help us to keep on keeping on. Help us to endure the end, finish the race. Help us not to fall away. Hold on to us and help us keep on making that eternal deposit, which will not fade away, will not be defiled.
and it is kept for us as a glorious hope for the future. Lord, help us to be faithful in doing your will and doing good. Help us to love one another fervently and to care for one another and to be careful how we protect one another, not to condone sin, but to cover and to bring about harmony and to bring about encouragement and to bring about forgiveness and bring about peace. Thank you for this word. Bless Keith as he teaches and preaches in the upcoming service. Bless our fellowship together, the music and all things. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And I thank you for this faithful group and for our faithful church. It is a gift from you, and we thank you. Help us to be useful and faithful. In your name I pray. Amen.